History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 479th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going to be doing a place called Prospect Place. This is in Ohio, and it was suggested by our listener, Donnie Lawrence Norris. Excellent. Before we get into that, uh, well, we don't have anybody to welcome into the spectacular crew because, Kelly, we're actually recording these episodes back to back. Yes, indeed, because we care about our listener family. And we're going to be going on our honeymoon. Yes, we are. (laughs) So we're taking a little (laughs) bit of a break there, but you will still get your content. And now, this moment in oddity. The moment in oddity was suggested by Mike Rogers. Undoubtedly, we have all witnessed an anthill where some unfortunate creature was becoming nourishment for the colony. However, would it surprise you to hear that there's a term called anting, where certain wild birds will actually choose to plop themselves down upon an anthill intentionally? There are a couple of hypotheses as to why over 200 species of birds will use the ants. One thought is that the ants are used to secrete formic acid onto the bird's body to act as an insecticide, fungicide, or bactericide. Another possible reason for the antine could be that by rubbing the ants encourages the ants to excrete their formic acid, allowing the ants to become more palatable for the bird to then ingest. Two types of antine have been identified as active and passive. Active antine is when a bird picks up an ant in its beak and rubs the insect on its body. Passive antine occurs when a bird appears to be taking a bath in a cluster of ants. Regardless of the actual purpose behind this peculiar pruning practice, birds using insects in such a manner certainly is odd. Hello, this is Victoria from victoriaslift.com. When I'm not taking those who must choose their destiny for a ride on the lift, I'm listening to History Goes Bump podcast. History isn't boring, it's terrifying. The past remains with us, and so do its spirits. Can you hear them calling? They want you to know their stories. Listen now to their voices and the truth from the past. And now, this month in history. month of March on the 5th in 1868, C.H. Gould patents the stapler in England. What would we do without staplers? It's the easiest way to hold a bunch of pieces of loose paper together. 
The 1860s was a revolutionary time for paper fastening devices, but the first known stapler dates back to the time of King Louis XV in the 18th century. He used the fastener to hold his decrees together. A man named George McGill got the first patent for a bendable brass paper fastener, and he went on to develop a device that could drive the fasteners through paper. Gould developed the direct predecessor of the modern stapler, but this could only drive one staple at a time. Albert Kletzger developed a similar device in America in 1868 as well. By 1898, the Hotchkiss stapler had been developed, and this allowed for a strip of staples held together by wire. This required so much force that sometimes users had to use a hammer or mallet on the plunger to get the staple to go through the paper. The turn of the century brought a clipless machine, so staples were no longer wired together. In 1923, introduced the first desk stapler. Swingline made many of the modern-day staplers until they closed their U.S. production facilities in 1999, and one of their most interesting models used a coil of 10,000 staples. That was back in 1974. Prospect Place in Trinway, Ohio, was built by an abolitionist and was a stop on the Underground Railroad. This was a house that not only had to be built twice due to a fire, but it was ahead of its time in regards to amenities. A legend connected to this property claims that a bounty hunter came calling looking for runaway slaves, and rather than finding slaves, he found a noose as workers on the farm hanged him. There are stories of spirits on the property. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Prospect Place. George Willison Adams, or G.W. as everyone called him, was born in Virginia in 1799 to a plantation owner. His father always had reservations about owning a plantation run by enslaved people. And when George was still a boy, his father gave up the plantation, freed the slaves, and moved the family to Madison Township in Ohio in 1808. Apparently it was something that he had inherited, and the minute his dad passed away, he was like, I'm selling the place. Well, that's nice. Yeah. So G.W. was raised to be an abolitionist. In 1828, he and his brother Edward built a flour mill. When that proved successful, they built another larger mill in Dresden, Ohio. The brothers went on to own a boatyard and many warehouses in Dresden. G.W. used his wealth to build up the town of Dresden, becoming the largest employer in the town, and he helped build bridges and a canal that connected Dresden with the Ohio Erie Canal. One of the bridges was a suspension bridge that he tried to get members of a stock company he set up to finance. They thought the plan wasn't feasible, so G.W. paid for the construction himself and hired his nephew to build it. The bridge was run as a toll bridge until G.W. sold it to the county commissioners for a third of what it cost him to build it originally. So that's how much he loved this town. Wow. Is that he's like, no, I am building this bridge. We need it. And then he basically gave it back to them. What a wonderful human being. Yeah, he gets better as we go here. G.W. and Edward also used their enterprises to set up an underground railroad. They would take flour down to Louisiana, especially New Orleans, and then they'd come back with enslaved refugees. So they just load them up. It's like trading back and forth. That's awesome. They also used their mills as safe houses. 
It comes as no surprise, then, that GW was very active during the Civil War to help support the Union in any way he could. He contributed money and goods for the military. When the war was over, GW focused on the railroad. He allowed many miles of -of right-of-way on his land to both the Panhandle and the Cincinnati and Muskingum Valley Railroad Companies. Eventually, he became director of both companies. GW also got involved in politics and served as a member of the General Assembly in Ohio. He married Clarissa Hopkins Schaff in 1845, but she passed away in 1853. The couple had four children, but two of them wouldn't survive into adulthood. Ironically, the two named for himself and his brother, George and Edward. GW then married Mary Jane Robinson in 1855, and they had five children. In 1856, GW decided to build his brick mansion. This was done in the Greek Revival architectural style with ornate gingerbread porticos and rose three stories, covering 9,500 square feet with 29 rooms. There was a wing added to the house that was only two stories, and this was used as servant quarters. The roof was covered with copper panels. A cupola crowned the house, and this would be used to house a signal light for runaway slaves. If the cupola was dark, it meant bounty hunters were in the area. If the cupola was lit, runaway slaves hiding in the fields would know it was safe to come up to the house. And what they would do is they had an entrance in the back that they would get them down into the basement, and then they'd hide them in the basement. This place was ahead of its time with hot and cold running water from a copper tank cistern on the second floor that pressurized water throughout the house and two coal stoves that had copper tanks that heated the water. There was an early form of air conditioning that was created by bringing the cool air from down in the basement up through ducts inside the walls to the main living quarters. The home also had a unique refrigeration system. This was a gorgeous place, and the family was just about to move in when the home was leveled by an arson fire. George Blackburn had been a bricklayer on the house who figured if he burned the house down, he'd have more work to do building the new house. Oh, my word. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, there's got to be other work, don't you think? Piece of work, man. Yeah. GW found out, and a legend claims he had him arrested and that Blackburn managed to escape from jail, but was later killed when he tried to rob a house and met the sharp end of an axe. However, as you dig into the truth behind that, it actually is that Blackburn never was arrested for the arson, although it's believed that GW probably knew that he was the one who'd done it, but they just didn't have enough evidence, I guess. But he did eventually go to jail for other crimes because he was a career criminal, and he died at the Ohio State Penitentiary of Heart Disease. The wreckage was cleared away, and a barn was built on the remains of the first mansion that could serve as living quarters for the ranch hands and also house the carriages and horses. A new mansion was built that matched the previous one in every way, except this one included modern fire-stopping measures. With interior walls being made from brick and a two-inch layer of mortar was placed between the first and second floors of the house to help block fire. GW named his home Prospect Place because it offered the prospect of a better future. And for runaway slaves, it offered the prospect of freedom. Abolitionist meetings were more than likely held in the gentleman's parlor, and one guest at their house was probably Mr. Nelson T. Gant, who was a former Virginia slave from Loudoun County that received his freedom when his owner died. He moved to Zanesville, Ohio, and started an orchard and coal mining operation from which he became a millionaire. Gant was also an important conductor on the Underground Railroad. The Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 made it legal for bounty hunters to capture runaway slaves in free states and take them back to the South for reward money. The thing that was crazy about this to me is that the North didn't like slavery, and if you could make it there, you were free. 
but they also allowed bounty hunters to come in and do this. And if you were harboring runaway slaves, it was illegal and you could be arrested for that. That's why the Underground Railroad had to be a secret, even though it was up in the north. Alleging claims that a bounty hunter came to the door demanding that runaway slaves be handed over. George had answered the door with a gun and there was a bit of a standoff until some of the farm workers came over and the bounty hunter left. There are claims that those workers chased down the bounty hunter, brought him back to the barn, and hanged him from a rafter. There's no proof of that, but that is something that the family has handed down over the years. And based on some of the evidence that people get in that barn, something happened in that barn. G.W. died at the age of 79 on August 31st, 1879. Mary then moved to Zanesville to live with her sister, and the eldest daughter, Anna, lived on the homestead with her husband, William Cox, and their children. There's a weird mystery here with William, though. He put a lot of money into Prospect Place, and he and Anna were happy here for many years. But at the turn of the century, something changed, and William Cox just disappeared. A friend of the family claimed to spot him in San Francisco, but when she called out to him, he brushed her off and hurried away. Some believe that he really did go to the city, but died in the 1906 earthquake. Apparently, this is a guy who liked to live large, so he didn't really care to live on this homestead because it didn't have the finest things. So he would start buying a lot of the finest things. But he wasn't very good at making money. So he did add up a lot of debt. So maybe he was running away from the debt. Possibly. Because one day he was supposed to go do a meeting, I think, in the city of Dresden. And he decided, I think I'll just get on that train to Columbus. Supposedly, he checked into a hotel with some strange man. And they both got on the train together that day and went west. And unfortunately, poor Anna, she stuck with this huge mansion and debt. Good grief. And so she ended up having to sell off a lot of the furniture in the house. She even had to sell off the copper that was on the top of the the roof. Oh, that's so sad. So she had to do whatever she could to try to make ends meet. And you can imagine she's also heartbroken on top of it, wondering, where did my husband go? So he was a real winner there. The house would continue to stay in the Cox family until the 1960s. The family had squandered their money and left the house abandoned. In 1969, Prospect Place was sold to a distant relative of George Cox named Eugene Cox, who owned a gravel mining company, the Cox Gravel Company. Eugene decided to mine on the property. However, the house was left to ruin and vandals broke in and nearly gutted the place. By 1988, the once grand mansion was slated for demolition. And when you look at side-by-side pictures of basically what it looks like today, because we didn't have pictures back then, and what it looked like before it was going to be demolished, I mean... It's amazing they were able to save this place. A local businessman named Dave Longeberger of Longeberger Basket Company couldn't stand the thought of the historic home being torn down, so he bought it with plans to renovate. Now, what's really cool about this is when I first started doing research, all I had was his name, Dave Longeberger, and I went, isn't that the name of those baskets that were a real hot commodity back in the day? I used to have one. Yeah, I knew a lot of people who did. I I never did because they were expensive. Well, mine was a gift and I left it in California when I moved here. I didn't actually think that it was connected to this. And then I was reading another and then I was reading another article and it had said that he wanted to make the home the headquarters of the Longaberger Basket Company. And I went, oh, so he is that one. Dave started with installing a new roof and putting a security system in to protect the house. Then he redid the floors and started tackling other projects. But then he was diagnosed with cancer. The cancer eventually killed him, but the Longaberger Company continued to maintain security on the property until 2001. The great-great-grandson of G.W. Adams, George J. Adams, purchased the home with the goal of finishing the restoration. 
he created a nonprofit, the G.W. Adams Education Center, Inc., which has owned the building since 2005. In 2017, George retired as chairman of the board due to health reasons. But a new board of trustees and the educational center have continued the restoration. They host tours, school programs, and ghost hunts, both public and private. Private hunts are just $70 per person on Wednesdays and Thursdays and $80 on Fridays. Saturday nights, you can rent the place for $640. They say you have a minimum of eight people or pay the $640. So you could have two people in there, but they want to make the money they would if you had at least eight people. Sure, and it sounds like something we should be doing. Absolutely. And here's the thing. (laughs) This is a place that basically was saved by ghost hunters. And I read an article in 2015 I don't know all the specifics, but they were having legal issues when it came to taxes because the state wanted to tax them on this money that they were making for ghost hunting. And they they were like, well, you're making this profit and blah, 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 blah. And you fall into this other bracket and all this other stuff. And they're like, you're trying to say that you're making most of your money with the educational stuff. But the way we see it, you're making most of your money with the ghost hunting. And so they stood up and said, wait a minute. Ohio State Reformatory over here, we designed our system for making money off of them. And you gave that you give them tax breaks. Why don't we get it? Exactly. So something must have happened because when the great great grandson was he was the one who was fighting it. He said, you know, if you guys take us to court one more time, we will have to fold because we cannot afford another trial. And this house is going to be lost. Something I don't know what the results of it was, but clearly they're allowing them to continue to do ghost hunting. And the house was saved because that was back in 2015. So I'm glad that that got taken care of. But yeah, I was like, wait a minute. There's plenty of places that are making most of their money off of ghost hunting that are still nonprofit. That's how most of these historical places are saved, are getting saved or putting a roof on. You know, even Lillian Place, the board there did not want to embrace the whole ghost hunting thing. But when they saw that, they're like, you know what? This is making us some money. And they need the money to maintain the property and and continue restoration. They're old buildings. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, it's not like you have people coming in and tearing up the place, whatever. Most ghost hunters are very respectful. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. The property is said to harbor the spirits of the Adams family. I loved saying that. (laughs) One D, not two. Yeah, it's just the one. You rang. The spirit of the bounty hunter is thought to still be hanging out in the barn. And this is a big brick barn. It looks so cool. And it's got all the ivy growing up all over the outside of it. So I don't know that I've ever seen a barn made out of brick. I never had before either. His angry spirit is said to lash out at visitors and a dark clad form is seen in the barn. Other possible spirits might belong to fugitive slaves. Some who arrived at the house had been beaten or shot, and they didn't survive their injuries. I know in particular there was one woman that had a head injury or something, and the family tried to help her for a few days, but it was just too much. There's a legend about a young girl who'd been in the house, delirious with fever. She'd gotten up and walked out onto a balcony that was over a side portico and slipped on some ice that sent her over the railing and to her death. Her body was kept in the basement until the spring thaw. She is seen walking around the house in a white dress, especially in the ballroom. This is another legend. They're not for sure that this girl ever lived there or had anything happen to her. Some of this is what psychics have told them. Anne Adams Cox is said to have died in the house after an accident, brokenhearted from the disappearance of her husband, William. Her apparition has been seen wandering the halls. 
A psychic once claimed that a former servant at the house likes to hang out on the stairwell on the landing between the second floor and the ballroom. I always love it when you hear these stories of like, well, there's a spirit that hangs out on that stairwell. Why? Is that like your only place that you get to hang out for the afterlife? Or is it residual? Yeah, because I just I always have a hard time when people are like that's stuck there. They can't go anywhere else. Like when they say that person is only on the second floor. Well, why can't they go all over the house? Why can't they leave the house? People hear us asking all the time. I like to ask the spirits, can you leave here? Do you come back? Well, it's not something that they can prove that, oh, no, they only hang out on the second floor. Yeah. It'd just be that that's where that particular spirit is most often connected with. Yeah. Adelaide Haunted Horizons made the trip from Australia to investigate here and wrote, this was a second visit for me to Prospect Place. Unfortunately, on the first one, I managed to lock my keys in the boot of the car, so I missed most of the investigation. Oh, that's horrible. That sucks. <laughs> now, I had a second chance to return to finally look for the Prospect Place ghosts myself. This time, I was joined not only by CAG, but also by Beth Darlington from Access Paranormal. We started in the front room, and it wasn't long before the Mel meter triggered. But at the same time, a REM pod triggered upstairs. CAG remained in the hallway down below while Beth and I went for a walk to the barn and stables. Despite us not being in the house with CAG, there were still thumps from upstairs and what sounded like somebody moving around. And the ovalist spat out the word blaze. Not only that, but upon doing an EVP, she apparently captured two. What are they saying? We aren't sure. Meanwhile, in the barn, Beth and I were having experiences of our own. I was looking towards the barn door towards the house when I saw a small bright light which moved across in front of the house. I saw it a second time in the doorway of the barn about four feet off the ground. It came in very bright white, undulated, turned, and then vanished. I will add that this was seen with my eyes, not on camera. And it wasn't peripheral vision, but full on. That does make that pretty interesting. Absolutely. People see things out of the corner of their eyes all the time, but it's mm -hmm. it's something where you're thinking, did I see something strange or was my brain playing tricks on me? Yeah. But when you see it full on, especially that's why I love that you saw that light at McPike Mansion. Right. Before that you was took full the on of that blue light. So it's like it wasn't a trick of the camera. A couple of seconds after this, the REM pod triggered. Without telling Beth, she also saw a white light moving around. We swapped around and Beth remained in the house on her own while Cag and I went to the barn to do a live stream. We were getting some interesting results on the equipment, but suddenly we heard what sounded like Beth shouting. We quickly turned off, thinking that Beth was in trouble and headed back to the house, only to find that she was fine and hadn't shouted at all. So who was shouting? As we were discussing this, a fire alarm went off, deafening us as we tried to find it. We called Jeff, our host, who was sleeping in a house close by, as we couldn't fathom where it was coming from. As he walked through the door, although it had been screaming for over 10 minutes, it suddenly stopped and did not trigger all night again. They were totally messing with them. Yep. Jeff scratched his head as it was not that the batteries were going flat and there'd been no source of the smoke. The only thing he could think of was that whoever was there was trying to drive us out of the house, especially as the noise was so unbearable. Beth and I went down into the cellar, leaving CAG elsewhere, and it wasn't long before we had equipment trigger and at the same time, we had footsteps crossing above us. We took note of the time to cross-reference with CAG, but she was nowhere near the area. It certainly was an interesting night, and we'd love to go back sometime to explore further and try and communicate with the Prospect Place ghosts. Mark Clare, in 2014, wrote on TripAdvisor, I made sure I reiterated haunted in the title. It was active, alive, absorbing our energy, responding with incredible results. My team and I investigated this place. 
We had seen it on Ghost Adventures. Approaching the mansion is a walk back into history, rich with conflict, pain, sorrow, courage, and death. During our investigation, I offered whatever energy I had to the residual residents so they could provide some sign that they were present and attentive. I wouldn't be offering my energy to nothing. My team offered theirs as well. We continued on through the house, and shortly after, we were collectively drained of our energy. We had never felt or experienced this kind of drain before, and we've investigated many locations for many hours. It made us become almost comatose with exhaustion. We decided to venture into the basement and were amazed at the shadow activity. In dim light, after taking 15 to 20 minutes to allow your eyes to adjust to the darkness, our entire team witnessed shadow figures like nothing we've ever encountered. The shadows moving across and up and down the hallway were highly visible as they blotted out the only source of light at the end of the corridor. Many were at the end of the hallway, while others almost seemed to pass directly in front of us. It was at this time when a female team member was touched and her shirt pulled from behind. The activity continued for almost an hour. When it began to subside, we continued our investigation. All in all, we feel that Prospect Place is well worth returning to for another investigation. It's truly an amazing place. Tom S. in 2019 on TripAdvisor wrote, Five of us returned to Prospect Place for the third time in several years. The restoration of the mansion is continuing and what a worthy cause this is. We visited 623-2019 and were met by Carrie and her son. We were given a warm welcome and Carrie's son shared some of his experiences with us. He's a budding ghost hunter and we enjoyed his stories. As on our previous trips, we had activity in the cellar and on the second and third floors. The pigeons are gone. I guess they must have had a lot of pigeons up on the top or something. Well, that's probably a good thing because it could easily be moving around and make you think that something else was going on. Yeah, there'd be a lot of contamination there. And the third floor battened down, so it was much quieter and easier to investigate. We got quite a few good EVPs and were told there were eight Adams there. Sophie Adams and several who were servants are still there. We got some interesting photos and videos. The house was very active the night we were there. If you're interested in the ghost hunts, we highly recommend it. And if you are just into history, it is still highly worth a visit. So for us, it hits all cylinders. Stop in and see for yourself. Ghost Adventures investigated Prospect Place during their third season in 2010. The guys heard disembodied laughter and hissing and a young girl's voice. They caught EVPs saying, come here, some more, and get out. They also heard disembodied footsteps, had an object thrown at them, and heard a loud bang. The guys also claimed that a cross on the wall was getting very cold, and they believed this was a portal opening up. Of course it was. <laughs> <laughs> was it a metal cross? Because naturally it should be cooler. Yeah. I, don't know. I mean, maybe it really did get cold, but I was off there like, oh, a portal's opening up now. And I'm like, right where the cross is on the wall? Why? There were the usual balls of light that Ghost Adventures captures, but we don't put that much stock in it. No, I mean, they do catch a lot of these balls of little light and they do move in erratic patterns. So maybe and they do seem to pass in and out of people. And sometimes, you know, they'll be like, like Nick will be like, oh, I felt like something just touched me or I'm feeling tired all of a sudden. But maybe it's not dust. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe it's not a dust ball that floated up and hit you in the forehead. And now all of a sudden you're really tired. But I, I don't put a whole lot of trust into that kind of stuff. In 2016, Ghost Brothers went out to investigate Prospect Place. They were greeted by the owner, George Adams, who was the great-great-grandson. A woman named Kim Zalsweedle told the Ghost Brothers that she had been in the barn when she was touched by a spirit. She said she felt a burning on the upper part of her back, and her daughter looked at her back, 
and there was a large red handprint with scratches under it. And she shared a picture of that. And it was pretty weird. I mean, it really did look like a handprint. And then there were a couple of scratches that looked pretty new. How bizarre. She and her daughter also captured an EVP saying, I will cut you. And they played it. And that is what it said, which is weird because I don't know. I will cut you seems more of a modern day kind of thing. But maybe they said that back then, too. I don't know. Kim agreed to meet the guys out at the property. And she told them that legends claim that the bounty hunter that was hanged in the barn could have been buried there as well. So the Ghost Brothers brought out a cadaver dog, and it did indicate that there were human remains in an area of the barn. Oh. What they actually think is that it was, there's like a wall there. I don't know if it's like between stalls or whatever, but it was like you couldn't get to where the dog was trying to go. He would like go to this area and mark, and then he would go over to the other area. It was like he was running back and forth, like trying to get to wherever the spot was. Did it seem like he could have been walled into something? Maybe. Because it's a brick barn. It looked like all the walls and there were more of a wooden construction. Okay. And the the one area that he was really going to, it kind of looked like it was even dug out a little bit. So it was definitely in the ground. Yeah. And I mean, cadaver dogs, they are only supposed to mark or indicate if it's human remains, you know, so it couldn't have just been like some other animal had crawled in somewhere and died. And his signal was to bark. But he did even more than that. At one point, he started growling. And I kind of felt like watching him on the video that he could see something that we couldn't see something negative yeah it was like he was backing away and then he kind of ran away from the area that he just marked i don't know if he picked up on the cadaver and then he could see the spirit that went with it and didn't like it dalen is sensitive to energy and in one of the upstairs bedrooms he got so nauseous that he had to leave and he did end up throwing up into a trash can The Ghost Brothers started their investigation in the barn, and they set up a REM pod. When they asked if there was someone in there that they couldn't see, the REM pod lit up. Later, they asked why the spirit only messes with women. Is it afraid of men? And the REM pod lit up again. Dalen felt like he was pushed in the barn. They went looking for a red-eyed entity that hides down in the basement, and Dalen did seem to capture two red dots on the thermal camera. They tried debunking it, thinking it was lights on the camera causing it. But then the dots weren't there anymore. He called Marcus over and Marcus was looking and he goes, no, it's just something that's coming off of the camera. It's got to be. And so Dalen flipped it up and was like, well, there's no lights on here or anything like that. And then when he put it back down, the dots were gone. Interesting. I will say that the dots were kind of moving like, you know, if you're holding something and your hand is shaking because you're holding it. Right. You could see the dots moving that way. So I'm like, that's why it seemed like it was something connected to the camera. But then I'm like, why weren't they there then when he put it back down again? Yeah, unless he was just holding it in a slightly different position, because we have seen that before where people think that they're catching orbs and so forth. And it's just something that's An anomaly with the device they're using. Yeah. So I don't know if other people have had this same experience because the dots were far enough apart that if this was the red eyes of some kind of entity, they were pretty far apart. It was rather large. Yeah. And then something started scratching near a fireplace on the third floor when Marcus asked if there was anyone else in the room with them. Yeah. So they got some interesting interactions there. Prospect Place is a large and distinct house with an equally distinct and historic brick barn. The place once saved slaves, and now it seems that some of those spirits might be saving this place as people come from all around to seek their presence. Is Prospect Place haunted? That That is for you to decide. decide.
just another place. We're going to have to like plan a whole week in Ohio and do the whole state to hit yeah, all these places. Yeah, for sure. We, we need a road trip. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you'd like to give us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We heard from Jenny Lynn Rains. She said, I just finished listening to the Smoky Mountain episode, literally one of my favorite vacation places. Part of my family has been in Arkansas for the last 200 years. A big chunk of my family came from North Carolina and Eastern Tennessee. Two interesting things. There is a folk art school in North Carolina called the John C. Campbell Folk Art School. It is the longest continuous running folk art school in the United States. I've taken several vacations here. It also has one of the few blacksmithing schools left in the United States. I didn't even know that there was like a blacksmithing school still. Well, it was probably about 20 years ago, but a friend of mine actually was doing that. So I do think that they exist. Also unique to that part of the United States is the theory of a group of people called the Melungeons, I guess is how you say it. Part of my mom's side of the family supposedly is of this group. It's been interesting to take DNA tests to see what does and does not come up. If you get a chance, read about this group. Apparently, Melungeons are an ethnicity from the southeastern United States who descended from Europeans, Native American, and Sub-Saharan Africans brought to America as indentured servants and later as slaves. They're historically associated with settlements in the Cumberland Gap area of central Appalachia, which includes portions of East Tennessee, Eastern Kentucky, and Southwest Virginia. There's no consensus about how many of this group exist, but they say it could be as high as 200,000 people. Interesting. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that, Jenny. And then Janae wrote in the crew, got my leg tattoo finished yesterday and had a ghostly encounter while I was there. The nice female ghost at the building where my favorite tattoo shop is located is very particular about the music they play. For most of the session, there was some weird playlist of basically breakup music, Ed Sheeran, Pink, Taylor Swift, etc., that everyone was just kind of ignoring since the shop was busy with multiple tattoos happening. After the playlist started over, my artist, who is also the owner, couldn't take it anymore, so she changed it to No Doubt Radio. Up until this point, the only weirdness was the Alexa said twice at random, I'm sorry, I can't understand what you are saying, or something to that effect when no one was talking to it. Wonder who was talking to it. Couldn't see him. After the first No Doubt song played, the lights in the shop started flickering like crazy. I was worried it was from the storm outside, but the owner of the shop just rolled her eyes and said, I'll change it later. I'm busy. The lights kept flickering, and my artist explained that Phyllis messes with the lights when she doesn't like the music. After several more minutes of the lights flickering, my artist says, All right, fine. I can't see what I'm doing when you do that. She stops tattooing me and gets back on her phone, this time selecting a Metallica playlist. The lights flickered one more time after the music changed to metal and then went back to normal for the rest of the session. (laughs) In my mind's eye, I saw an elderly female with a long-sleeved, high-necked shirt and long skirt on stomping back and forth by the front of the shop, head banging to her heart's content. That is hilarious. Phyllis was happy. A metal granny. I know. I (laughs) thought, oh, if he changed it to Metallica, it's going to be even worse. Nope. She loved it. That's great. Yeah, that definitely is not a storm if it's uh, flickering, flickering, and then you change the music, and it's like, yep, that's what I want. want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery, Marcus Torres. We're going to be burying you in a chest tomb. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. I truly hope that you enjoy all the bonus casts and those reduxes. And there'll be a sticker and magnet coming in the mail, too. 
Yes, indeed. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting, and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page.